All right, so I got about 25 minutes to wrap up uh, 50 chapters of the book of Genesis and eight or nine months of uh, preaching through this book. We started this series in the book of Genesis on January 13th of this year. We took a couple of breaks for Easter and Mother's Day, Father's Day things, but, but mostly we've been preaching through the book of Genesis since January. And Genesis, if you remember, means, the word itself means the beginning. This book shows us the beginning of creation, man, sin, redemption, just everything. Everything really starts uh, right here. And we saw the book really divided into two main sections. Chapters 1 through 11 really deal with God and the whole world. And then chapters 12 through 50 really deal with God and the family of Abraham and his descendants. And eventually that is the nation of Israel. Now today we're going to talk through kind of the whole book. Uh, so if you missed any of the sermons, you know, hopefully this will catch you up. But if you'd like to listen to any of them, don't forget you can go to our website at fogkc.com and listen to any of those sermons. And I don't want to give you the impression that next series you can skip all the time and just come to the last one and hear this wrap up. That's not a good idea, okay? But I do want to talk about some of the main themes of Genesis because really we went from Eden to Egypt in this thing. We went through 2,000 years of history. And by the way, uh, out in the foyer or out in the lobby, uh, there is a... Uh, a calendar. It's a, a calendar that lays uh, biblical history on top of world history and shows you exactly how they intertwine. It's really amazing and it's, it's kind of mind-blowing when you see that all on one chart of how they intertwine and how they are both uh, really accurate. And so uh, what are the main themes of Genesis? If we had to limit it to just a 20-minute sermon, how do we do that? I mean, there's 50 different really main themes. But I'll try to do it as best I can. Here's the first one. And that is that God's character is revealed to his creation. Now, I want to make sure you understand that it doesn't mean God's character is being created. God's character isn't being, uh, he isn't growing in character. God has always been the same. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, he has existed uh, before today, eternally in, in the past. But his character was being revealed to the world and to mankind. And it starts out by him being the triune God, the triune creator. Look at Genesis 1.1. If you remember, it says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now that particular verse uh, really creates a great theological um, uh, outline all of itself. When you see in the beginning God, that denies atheism. Atheism cannot be true if God was in the beginning and he was. In the beginning, God, which also denies polytheism. There are not multiple gods. There are not multiple ways or authors to heaven. There is one God. Now, he exists in the Trinity, which we'll see here in a minute, but it is one God. There are not multiple gods. When it says, in the beginning, God created, that denies fatalism and us being here by chance. This didn't all just happen by chance, folks. Um, uh, one of my favorite uh, authors, Josh McDowell, uh, says that the, the likelihood of the world being by chance would be like taking every single individual piece of a pocket watch, putting it in a box, and beginning to shake it until it finally turned into a watch that ran on its own, perfectly put together. And we see that that's just, you know, not even possible. But, but it didn't happen that way because God created it. And when we see in the beginning God created, it also denies macroevolution. 
Now, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to revisit the whole first uh, sermon. You can go back and see that yourself. But I, that doesn't mean that we deny microevolution. In other words, a species can change and adapt uh, because of their circumstance, because of certain things. Uh, but there is no scientific evidence for, there is no scientific evidence that uh, actually defends macroevolution, the fact that species change from one species to another. And we know that that's not true because in the, in the beginning, God created things. They didn't evolve. Uh, good news for all of you, uh, your great, 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 great grandfather was not a lake of goo somewhere, okay? Uh, God created us. In fact, in Genesis 1.26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, when he says, Let us make man in our image, who's the us? The us is the Trinity. The Trinity was working together in the creation of the world. Now, I don't have time again to revisit uh, the Trinity and make perfect sense for you out of the fact that one God exists in three persons and yet he's still the one. Uh, if I could explain that to you, I'd be writing books and teaching seminars and having my own uh, uh, seminary somewhere because I'd be the only one to fully and completely explain it. But it is true because we know God's word says it. And so we see there that God existed uh, in the form of the Trinity at the be before uh, the beginning of history, and he created us. He created us in his likeness. Now, that doesn't mean that we look like God. I think sometimes we get confused because we see Jesus, uh, the incarnation of God in human flesh, and we go, oh, yeah, we kind of look like God. He's a human like us. Well, in that particular instance, he was, but that's not what it means when it says that God created us in his likeness doesn't mean that we look like him. It means that we are different than the animals. It means that we are like God in several ways. Like, for instance, man can reason instead of being controlled by our instinct. Animals are controlled by their instinct. And let's just be honest, some of us sometimes are too, unfortunately. But we have the ability to reason and make choices uh, in, in, in uh, contradiction to our temptations and instincts. We are eternal souls. God created us with eternal souls. The moment you were conceived, you became an eternal soul that will last forever somewhere. Animals, however, do not have eternal souls like God. And so there are other uh, instances, and again, you can go revisit any of these sermons, uh, of how God created us to be in some ways likened to him uh, but we don't necessarily look like him. He doesn't look like us. We saw not only uh, uh, is God the triune creator, but he is sovereign. And the, the word sovereign actually means possessing supreme or ultimate power. God has complete, total power over everything. There is a, no single thing that happens on earth that is opposed to what God will allow. Now, I say it that way for a specific reason. I am not a hyper-Calvinist that believes that uh, God wound up the world at the beginning of time 
and now everything is proceeding exactly like he wants it to. Uh, he didn't pick out my socks today. I, I don't think there's those kind of things. But is God completely and totally in charge? Of course he is. He is sovereign. I want you to see how many uh, sovereign statements God makes uh, when he talks to Abram in Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. Look clearly at, uh, he is not wooing Abram to him saying, Abram, I wish you would do these things. I wish you would do these things. I wish you would do these things. Look at how he speaks this in Genesis chapter 17, verses one through eight. He says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, if you remember, if you were here, we talked about that being this great covenant between God and Abraham. But I want to go back and reread it, and I've highlighted some passages uh, on the screen here so you can see the times when God is being very emphatic of what he is going to do and how things are going to be. Because God is ultimately in charge and in control of everything. Here's what it says. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Abram didn't have a choice. Abram didn't get to, Abram didn't get to opt out. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Folks, we saw over and over and over and over and over and over in the book of Genesis that God is in control. God is in control. God is ultimately in control. Now, does that mean that God forces his choice on everyone in every moment? No, he can yield that power. He can say, Michael, I'm gonna give you the choice here. Uh, I know you're being tempted. I'm gonna give you the choice to either choose me or choose your own way. But it doesn't mean that God has lost control. It doesn't mean that God has lost ultimate power. And so God is ultimately in charge of everything. He isn't asking Abraham anywhere in this passage if it's okay if he does these things. They're going to happen. And basically what God's saying is, uh, Abram, Abraham, these things are going to happen. You can either embrace the plan or you can fight against it, but it doesn't much matter 
It's going to go down like I say it's going to go down. Now, folks, if we have any trust in God's character at all, this should give us hope. This should give us encouragement. The God of the universe who created everything, who ultimately loves me and cares about me, is totally and completely in charge. Nothing, nothing, nothing befalls me that hasn't gone by him as the gatekeeper. We see that he's not only uh, sovereign, but he's a just judge and redeemer at the same time. We see in the book of Genesis this beautiful balance of God's character. He cannot allow sin. He cannot accept sin. He cannot embrace sin. But he offers redemption in the midst of it. He must be, if he's going to be a just judge, he must, he must judge justly. But at the same time, he offers redemption and forgiveness in the midst of it. Perhaps one of the most radical and complete pictures of this is in the flood. In Genesis chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, if you remember, uh, here's what it says. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. He's speaking to Noah. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. We see here that God must judge the world. The world has gone uh, just completely, you know, evil. Uh, they're violent. They're killing one another. They're just out of control in this total and complete uh, social chaos on the planet. And God says, I'm, I'm just got to destroy him. But you, Noah, while Noah's not perfect, Noah had a heart for God. Noah had a, had a, 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 a relationship with God where he wanted to follow him and do right in his eyes. And so God, while he's judging the world and bringing just, just justice to the world, he's also redeeming Noah and his family at the same time. This beautiful balance of who our God is. Another thing that I wanted you to see this morning, and I have to uh, confess I had 46 other things, but I've got to stop here, is that he was trustworthy and faithful. He is trustworthy and faithful. God never breaks a promise. Not once in the book of Genesis does God break a promise. He is always true to his word. In every single situation, God fulfills what he said he would do without fail. Now, folks, this should give us comfort. This should be good news to us. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. He's not like us who makes a promise fully intending to keep it and may or may not at the end. God always, always keeps every promise. So we see that God has revealed his character to man. And I want to encourage you, if you weren't here for most of this series, go back and listen to some of these sermons. I got uh, probably more emails and text messages about uh, this series than any other we've preached in 14 years of people just saying, man, that, th this is coming alive for me. Uh, this isn't some old, dusty, Old Testament book that's just, you know, history stuff that, you know, puts me to sleep every Sunday. Uh, man, this is, this is good stuff with good things in it, and it shows me who God is. So go back and reread some of those things. Uh, uh, the second and third thing uh, that I want you to see are kind of together, and they are this. Man's sin and rebellion bring consequences and judgment, and God's mercy and grace bring rescue and redemption. 
it's really hard for me to talk about one without the other uh, because they, they always come together. When man sins and his rebellion causes him to go against God's plan and decide that he's going to do what he wants rather than what God wants, God's mercy and grace are right around the corner. God's rescue and God's redemption are just on the other side. Now, this should, <laughs> this should give us more uh, uh, excitement than anything today. If you think through it, Noah and his family through the flood, God's going to destroy the whole world, but Noah and his family are saved. If you look at the Tower of Babel, mankind together collectively has decided we're going to build a tower to God because we're going to elevate ourselves to his height. We can do just as good as he can. We can be just as high as he is. Let's build a tower to the heavens. And while God would have been completely just to have destroyed them all, instead of killing them, he confused their languages so they could no longer communicate and continue to build. So he put an end to their, their, their uh, uh, tower building, but he didn't kill them. He showed them mercy and grace, even in the midst of his judgment. When you look at the story of Lot and his family uh, leaving Sodom, God, again, brings his judgment, his just judgment, uh, to the city of Sodom for their immoral acts. And yet, Lot and his family are spared. God protects them and saves them, brings them redemption. We see through the dysfunction of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their families that God still is very merciful. God fulfills his covenant, and he redeems them in every situation. You know, one of the things that I heard more than anything else is, uh, wow, I always pictured Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as these, you know, huge pillars of the faith. I mean, these guys were like the, the you know, they were the, the, the champions of the faith. And their, their families were just as messed up as mine, or maybe more. You're right, folks. They were. Their families were completely dysfunctional at times. Jealousy, pride, just, just relationship killers is what they were. And yet in the midst of all of that, while God provided some justice and some judgment to them at times, he always provided a balance of mercy and grace, giving them redemption. We see Joseph's brothers selling him into slavery because they were so jealous of him. And yet God saves them through that act by bringing Joseph to power. And Joseph not only saves his family, but he really saves uh, all of Egypt by his plan to overcome the famine. Probably the, the second most powerful verse, besides verse 1-1 in Genesis, is in that last chapter, chapter 50, verses 19 and 20. It says, but Joseph said to them, and Pastor Derek preached about it just last week, but Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? He's talking to his brothers, because they're like, we're, we're sorry, man. We're sorry. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, in that passage is uh, just a lot of theological depth and to be honest, a little bit of theological confusion. Because 
Uh, We know for a fact from God's word in other places that sin never starts in the mind or the heart of God. God is not the initiator of sin. He is not the contributor to sin. And yet what he's saying in that verse is, uh, listen, Joseph's saying, listen, brothers, you meant to sell me to do something evil to me. You meant it for evil. But the same time you meant that for evil, God was allowing you to do it and meaning it for good. He was, in essence, being a part of it. Not for evil, but for good. Now, how all that works together, I, I, the, the scripture is just not very clear. It doesn't say, well, evil starts in the heart of man. We decide something, and in the planning in our minds and our hearts, God decides in that moment to come and, and uh, figure out how to use that evil thing that we're about to do for somebody's good. It doesn't say how that all works together. And I can't completely tell you that. Because it doesn't say God takes evil that people do and he turns it into good. That's not what it says. It says while you were planning this for evil, God was planning it for good. And yet he doesn't cause people to sin. He doesn't encourage people to sin. So there's a little bit of a a theological tension there. But let me just tell you this. Here's how I know that's true. Because there's dozens and dozens and dozens of things in my life where I look back and I see things that happened to me. Sometimes they were just part of being in a fallen world. But sometimes people meant evil towards me. They chose to be evil towards me and somehow that turned out good for me. I learned a life lesson. I, I, I learned about myself. I gained some insight into the world It's just amazing how God works even the evil that people decide for our good. One of the classic examples for me is just, it's not anybody did anything evil, just being part of a fallen world and being in a sinful world. You know, I I had asthma really bad as a child, didn't get to play any sports or do anything like that. So to occupy my time, because I drove my parents crazy, so to occupy my time, they gave me music lessons. And and I got to be honest, when I was seven, eight, nine, ten years old, I was angry at God. I was, you know, it was sad. You'd, 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 you'd cry if you saw me, my little face pressed against the glass watching the other kids play outside. It was just a sad, sad thing. But my parents made me take music lessons to keep me from driving them crazy. And I can't tell you what a blessing that's been in my life. I've been able to do things and go places that I never would have been able to do if I hadn't been a musician, if I'd have been out playing ball like everybody else. Uh, There are uh, people and and relationships that I have that I would have never had if it hadn't worked out that way. I see these things in my life, how God has taken uh, not only just the bad of the world, but even, and I'm not going to give you any examples because I don't want to point out to you people who have done me wrong, (laughs) okay? But there's been people in my life that have done me really, really, really wrong, just like I'm sure in your life. But folks, I want you to see Here in Genesis, we see that God's purpose for all of that is somehow for our good. It's somehow to bless us. And sometimes that's even for us to get to the end of it so that we can be a blessing to others that are going through it. And so we see this great picture in the book of Genesis. We see God's character revealed to his creation, us. We see man's sin and rebellion bringing consequences and judgment onto ourselves And we see God's mercy and grace bringing rescue and redemption to those in the book of Genesis. Does that sound vaguely familiar to you? Does that 
kind of step-by-step procedure, something you've seen before somewhere? You know why? Here's why. Because Genesis is the foreshadowing of the gospel. Folks, Jesus was never God's plan B. It's not like uh, 3,000 years into history, uh, God decides, oh my gosh, they're just totally out of control. What am I going to do? Okay, Jesus, you're going to have to go and save the world because, you know, nothing else is working out right. That wasn't what happened at all. Jesus was the plan from before day one. That was all a part of God's plan from the very beginning. So I want you to see how it compares, how it uh, really foreshadows and shows us a glimpse, a reflection of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. When we see the gospel, the first thing that I share with people is that God is holy and perfect in his character, who he is. Sin can't really remain in the presence of God. And so we see here in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now we often use this verse to say, hey, we're all in the same boat. We emphasize the fact that all of us are sinners. doesn't matter whether you're a sinner at this level or this level at this level. We're all sinners and we all are separated from God because of it. But I want you to see that what that does for us, it causes us to fall short of the glory of God. That's talking about God's character, God's perfection, the glory, the perfection of God, who he is up here. Uh, Our sin causes us to fall short of that. And we cannot have a relationship with him. We cannot remain with him forever in heaven in that position because mankind sins and invites God's judgment. In Romans 6.23, in the first half of that verse, it says, for the wages of sin is death. That's the payment. Because we are sinners, because we do not measure up to God's character, we are to be separated from him. Not just now, but forever. That death is a separation of, of, of souls, our soul being separated from God's forever because we are sinners. And it, it, it's because of both things, our DNA of sin in our lives from Adam, because he sinned and has passed it down like blue eyes. We all have the sin gene. We were born in sin, but the reality is we all have sinned also. And so even if you don't believe in original sin, the fact is you've done things that are wrong, you've sinned anyway, so we're all in the same boat. But here's the good news, folks. God shows his mercy and grace by providing a redemptive savior, Jesus. God has been saving people. God has been sharing and showering his mercy and grace on people since Genesis chapter two or three. And he hasn't stopped John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, eternal life. The reality is, folks, that Genesis, the book of Genesis, from chapter 1 to chapter 50, has shown us who God is and how God acts with the world. Yes, I know Jesus hadn't come yet. Yes, I know that they don't put their faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross yet. I got that. But the reality is God is the same as he was in the book of Genesis. The way that he works with the world is the same as it was in Genesis. He hasn't changed. He sees man in our sinfulness, in our rebellion, in our decision from the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve decided, we know better than you do, God. 
we're going to do contrary to what you say. Since that time, God has been trying and, and, and uh, purposely, continually uh, redeeming mankind. And he's still in that uh, business today. The reality is, all of us are as separated as the farthest person in the book of Genesis from God because of our sin. But God has given us an opportunity through his son Jesus if we will simply put our faith and trust in what he did on the cross to pay for all of our sins, all of our sins can be erased. All of our past can be gone. All of the things that we have done that you may even think puts you too far away from God for him to ever love you, it brings you close to him. And it brings you into his family if you'll just put your faith and trust in what Jesus did. Folks, I want you to remember that the book of Genesis is not some old dusty history book with nothing in it for you. It is a foreshadowing of the gospel that can save your eternal soul. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Genesis and how it foreshadows your plan, the gospel, to save the world. Father, help us to value your word. From the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation, you have gone to a lot of trouble through the centuries to see that it was written, to see that it was compiled, to see that it was protected. God, help us to use that book to, to see it as having the truth for all of life in it. God, uh, thank you for this study. Thank you for this book. And I pray that if there's anyone here today who has not yet put their faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross to save their eternal soul, that they would do so today before they leave. Father, if, they, if you are prompting their heart, help them to talk to somebody here. Help them to ask some questions, to get into a conversation so that we can help them. And Father, we are thankful that this story does not stop with just point one and point two, that you are a good and holy God and that we are sinners who um, just deserve to be separated from you. We thank you for step three your love and your mercy and your grace that reach down to us and offer us forgiveness and redemption and salvation through your son Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.